I'm realtor Heather Womack. I grew up in Minnesota and love all the outdoor activities we have here. In fact, I love Minnesota so much that I moved back here from Europe to raise my family in the land of beautiful hikes, refreshing clear lakes, and winter fun. That's why I'm reaching out. As a realtor, I've helped hundreds of folks buy their first home, sell the home they have, purchase a lake cabin, or start investing in Minnesota real estate. If you love adventure but need some new scenery, call me. My website is heatherwomackrealty.com. That's heatherwomack, W-O-M-A-C-K, realty.com. Hey, hello, and welcome to the Reverend Hunter Podcast. This is Tony Jones, the Reverend Hunter. Alongside me, as always, is the Garth to my Wayne, producer, engineer, Brandon. Uh, yes, that is my favorite one by far. <laughs> I love the love both of the Wayne's World movies, easily of my top 10. So that's, that's probably the highest compliment you can pay me. Dude, they're such, they're such sellouts now doing Verizon ad. Every time I log into Twitter, it's Wayne and Garth doing a Verizon ad. I know. It's, it's gross. All of the heroes from our past become sellouts trying to make money. <laughs> yeah, what do you do? I get it. I get it. We all got to have sponsors. And speaking of sponsors, I want to give a shout out to Coldwell Banker Realtor Heather Womack, the latest uh, sponsor on the Talk North Networks. Thanks, Heather, for your support. And just a reminder to those of you who listen to The Reverend Hunter that there's a bunch of other awesome uh, sibling podcasts in the Talk North Network that you can find, including a couple outdoorsy ones and then a bunch of Minnesota sports ones. And uh, I imagine that portfolio will continue to grow in 2021, all with the loving touch of brandon all over your fingerprints are all over the network <laughs> yeah but they're they're clean i've been washing my hands so we're good <laughs> oh that's good to hear that's good to hear what have you been up to tony oh man uh every day's the same bro you know <laughs> tuesday saturday thursday i don't i can't tell the difference i finally told courtney i said can we please please do something on the weekend just so I know it's different than every other day. I completely understand that. Well, well, then I know it's been the same as of late and it's kind of like that, that lull in the hunting season, but what's coming up yeah. next? I know you've got some things on your horizon at least. Yeah. Yeah. Turkey hunting is next. Um, that's the next season here. There is a, there is a season to thin out the, the herd of light geese, the, the flocks of light geese as they travel back north. I did see somebody on my Instagram feed this morning who yesterday, he and his hunting party shot 390 white geese, um, snow geese and speckled, speckled pelly geese. And, that's an yeah. bolt. That's, that's crazy. That's a huge... Yeah, and there's no limit. I mean, right. because they're trying to... Th because there's so many birds and they're doing such damage to the arctic tundra um it's basically an unlimited season in the spring so i don't know if anybody out there listening wants to invite me out to the dakotas to hammer some geese i'd be game but short of that i will be going up north to put out some game cameras pretty soon and and try to pattern some turkeys and then go up on april 14th for a turkey opener in minnesota and then it's you know about time to turn on the water at the cabin and see if we busted any pipes and uh you know 
the, all that fun part of the spring. Yeah. Well, How about not, you? Not not a whole lot. Just uh, trying to get uh, the first uh, camp planned. Hopefully, even by the end of this month, even though it's going to be kind of cold. Uh, just just as the same as you, so I can differentiate differentiate what day of the week it is. So I just want to go yeah. on one of these weekends, maybe find some public land or a state park, and just set up a nice. tent and just stand by a fire for two days. Nice. Yeah, that sounds beautiful. Well, I hope you get to do that and we'll get you back up to the cabin this year now that you're officially licensed hunter in Minnesota. And That's right. Get, get after it. Hey, speaking of hunters, uh, my guest today is such an awesome uh, outdoors woman. In fact, our conversation is so incredible that I hope listeners will... Uh, forgive the audio quality because I made the, even though I'm not a rookie podcaster, I made the rookie mistake of recording a podcast without you, Brandon. And as a result, something went wonky in my settings and the sound quality of my audio is less than ideal. So I throw myself on the mercy of the listeners and say, I'm sorry, but just think of it this way. Okay, Brandon, here's the deal. Right. I'm old I'm old enough to remember AM radio, okay? I listened to a lot of WCCO 830 the good neighbor with my grandparents growing up. It was always on in Gaylord, Minnesota on transistor radio in the kitchen. And you know what? I just say when you listen to this conversation, uh just think you're listening to me on AM radio. Hey, if you want, we could throw like some cigarette ads in there just to really make it feel like this. Yeah. Uh, and some silly skits from the you know morning crew and exactly. some sports some sports scores. It would really feel like some serious. We'd stop every eight minutes for four minutes of ads. That would oh, really yeah. feel like some AM radio for you. <laughs> so, in spite of. Um, in spite of the less than ideal audio on my end, which was one hundred percent my fault and should not be held against Brandon or the Talk North Network. Uh, Meadow Kaufeld is my guest. She is an incredible advocate for the outdoors. She is a very, very accomplished hunter, having hunted all over the world. Uh, she's a wildlife biologist. She teaches at Itasca Community College up north. She's uh, also now a taxidermist. She's a professional dog trainer. Holy moly, she does just about everything. We only scratch the surface. We're gonna. I'm gonna have to have her back on, um, and you know, talk. Even we didn't even talk that much hunting, per se. We talked a lot of other stuff, but um, boy, it's a great conversation, and I know you'll enjoy it in spite of the bad audio. Uh, would you please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast? We would love it if you did. Thanks so much for your support. And here is my great conversation with my friend, Meadow Kaufeld. Hey, Meadow. Thanks for coming on the Reverend Hunter Podcast. Tony, thank you for having me. It's great to catch up with you. Yeah, yeah. It's it's uh, been a while. I have these very fond memories of, I've just been writing about it recently, actually, that um, I was at Pheasant Fest. I think maybe it was mm -hmm. 2017. It was and a it, while ago, yeah. Yeah, I was in Minneapolis, and I wandered up to the Rough Grouse Society booth, and there you were in a, in a you know, Rough Grouse Society embroidered shirt, I think, and 
I was like, hey, I have this family land. We got it logged a while ago. We don't really know what to do. And I said, I'm an RTS member. So my $35 a year got me a, like a half day visit from you. <laughs> to our land. And I still, you know, I still remember it. Although I do have to ask you about one thing. You, you went into the Tamarack bog and you came yeah. out and you were like, there are wild blueberries in there. And I have yeah. looked for wild blueberries and not been able to find them. <laughs> oh. Well, I, I, I remember seeing the, it was not the right time of year, but the stems. So I don't yeah. know. I also will never forget. It was like a, a Hollywood moment when we drove up. So you're from the Rough Grouse Society at the time. We, gr- mm-hmm. we drive down this road on our property and there's a rough grouse taking a dust bath. Yes. Right in front of us. On cue. I thought that, how perfect is that? That is awesome. Well, uh, where, where do we find you today? Tell, tell listeners of this podcast where, where you're situated. I can see you, but they're just hearing you so they can't see the, the white tailed deer on the wall behind you. And then what is that? A warthog or something? A, Oh, it's just a classic, standard feral boar from uh, okay. Northern California. Yep. Okay. And then, yeah, I've got closets of skulls or cabinets. They're actually barristers' bookcases, so the glass oh. fronts. And I'm in my living room here in Grand Rapids, Minnesota. I'm still based up here. And um, I, I'm teaching now at the college, at Tassie Community College, in the Natural Resources Department. And um, really enjoy that. You know, that was originally one of my career goals was to teach mm-hmm. in the natural resources, specifically wildlife. I do get to teach a wildlife course right now. And yeah, you know, I've, I'm kind of diversifying too. And recently I've taken on avian taxidermy and then also done some pro dog training in the last year. Yeah, you you are quite a, a renaissance woman in the outdoors. And I want to touch on those different things because it's fun like following you on social media and like, Oh my gosh, now she does taxidermy. Now I know <laughs> if I were ever to shoot a duck in central Minnesota, which I don't seem to be able to do, I would, mm-hmm. uh, I'd bring it to you to taxidermize it for me. But, um, you aren't from Minnesota. So where, tell us about where you grew up and, and I, uh, what your growing up experience is like. Well, I'm, I'm from Northern California, so I'm outside of Redding on the western side. It's in the foothills of the Trinity Mountains in a town called Igo, which is very small. And uh, I came to Minnesota for graduate school. I had a good opportunity to come here and study rough grouse in north central Minnesota at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. And then I met my ex-husband, and we have a child together, and so that's why I'm still here. But um, yeah, you know, I I think I joke that of all the places you could end up stuck, Grand Rapids, Minnesota is not so bad. So <laughs> there's always something to do here and we're just losing our snow. So it's the end of our ski season, but you know, it's, it's a, a beautiful place and I'm glad, glad to be here in Minnesota. Yeah. Grand Rapids is just, I don't know, hour, hour and a half north of where our, our property is. Mm-hmm. Um, you grew up, in an outdoorsy type family, right? Like I've seen you post stuff. I mean, your yes. sister, you and your sister have had some incredible adventures, it looks like. Yeah. Uh, well, my father, I, I know it's everyone's, you know, I feel like I say, I say this a lot, but my father, he immigrated from the uh, Netherlands mm. to the United States when he was in his 20s so that he could have access to lots of public land and to be able to hunt and fish without, you know, having to have, a certain level of financial means in order to do so. 
And, um, you know, it's that freedom. He's, we've lived off grid. We grew up off grid and he wow. still lives off grid. He's about two and a half hours from town, um, on a big ranch in the Trinity Mendocino Humboldt junction between those three counties in California. But yeah, we, you know, that was very much, we were a small ranch and my grandparents had a quarter horse ranch. And then we, like I said, were on solar and pumped on water and lived off grid way before that was cool. Um, and a lot of people are, they romanticize that lifestyle, but it's not easy. Right. <laughs> I remember, um, you know, a lot of things like the anxiety of even turning on a light switch, uh, you know, cer- certainly the solar has improved now, the technology that they use, but I definitely grew up uh, in a way that a lot of people are striving to live now, including lots of chickens and composting and gardening and canning and all of those things are now hip, which we were actually made fun of growing up. And then also being a woman that hunts when we were little girls, um, my sister and I both really loved to hunt. That was one of the few things we got to do with our father because he worked uh, out of town oftentimes on heavy equipment and road construction and maintenance. So when he would be in town um, in the fall, you know, we would get to hunt with him. He would take us fishing on occasion, and then we would mechanic or weld with him. My sister welded with my dad. And so that was kind of what we did with him. And then I don't, you know, I'm just glad that he was open-minded enough to, at that time, you know, in the early 80s, we was born in 83, um, to take his girls out and involve them. And my earliest memories of deer hunting are wrapped up in the back of the Jeep and some wool blankets and mm. going. And um, so, yeah, you know, we were that was really a big part of our lives. And my sister and I have always just really had a strong drive or interest uh, in hunting so much so that, you know, we spent a lot of time hunting mice with our dogs in the woods and stuff. And, uh, you know, cause it's yeah. just, we were Not always pursuing meat. something. Not for the meat. Not for meat. No. I know you look back on it, It's like, gosh, some of the stuff we yeah. went through and did just to flush a deer mouse is pretty ridiculous. But um, yeah, we got our start uh, uh, on small things. And to be honest, um, we, I didn't really start deer, uh, bird hunting until college. Okay. So for me, you know, big game. So we grew up black-tailed deer, you know, feral hog, black bear. Uh, those were predominantly what we hunted as kids. And then as I got older, you know, I, when I went to college, I met a fair amount of people at Humboldt State University that I duck hunted with. And then oh. it went into more upland game before that stuff had been pretty opportunistic. It wasn't necessarily yeah. a dedicated sport in my life. When, okay. Now when you see um, all these TV shows about people living off grid, I mean, it's like <laughs> one of the hottest genres on television. What is that? How does that strike you as somebody who, who like grew up that way? I don't know. You know, it's kind of funny because we were given such a hard time and we were honestly embarrassed by the way we grew up like because, because you went to public school you were, were you homeschooled yes. or did you go to public no we went we went to public school but you know it was a we had 100 kids k through 8 pretty oh, small wow. school yeah and um you know 500 people in the town and we grew up in what a pretty poor rural part of california a lot of people that moved out there moved out there because they didn't want to be bothered by anyone and it wasn't necessarily desirable to live out there at the time and um so we were made fun of quite a bit you know I, I there were other kids that lived off grid um that lived even farther out of town uh but for some reason or other you know it was it was not a cool thing to do uh, when you were a kid and same thing with being girls that hunted we got we got a lot of flack for that and then we showed poultry chickens you know and so like we had a lot of reasons for other kids to single us out especially when you're in a small school you know we had eight uh 13 eighth graders in my graduating class 
So it was like a meat grinder. You were either in or you were out. And, um, you know, we were oftentimes singled out because yeah. of the way we were. We were just different. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, But it's not, I, I, I think of like um, washing your hair and running out of water with soap or, or a shampoo or conditioner in your hair and having to put clothes on, go out and run the generator, pump pump water to a tank, run an ex, uh, um, a large compressor to pressurize the tank to get the water up to the house, you know, or on a multiple rainy days, having to run a kicker generator to supplement the solar system so that we could actually, you know, have electricity. And we had a 12-volt system, so most everything that you or I would have now were not. Um... Oh, don't worry about that. I, you, we should be fine. So the things that you and I enjoy, like maybe a microwave or uh, a computer, um, those things are uh, weren't weren't accessible to us at the time. You know, you'd either have the computer on or the TV on, so you had to make um, decisions, wow. and uh, that that was always always something that wasn't all that great. And, you know, luckily we had a pretty good sewage system after a while, but a lot of people that live off grid do not have flushing toilets and or um, illegal sewage systems and silly things like flushing a toilet. I mean, I really feel spoiled the way I live now. I live in a modern house, um, but it's, it's a inconvenience. And then in Minnesota, you add the extra burden of keeping your house heated with wood heat. You can't be away from your house for more than eight hours, hmm. you know, and, and, or you have to have someone fill your burner, whether it's outside boiler or inside fuel, um, uh, a wood heat furnace. It's, mm-hmm. it's a lot of work and a lot of, I think people don't appreciate how much it ties you to your home, especially in a place like Minnesota, uh, where it takes a lot of work to live here in a normal house, much less an off-grid house. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, and your dad still lives there, you say? Well, he actually lives, so our, we lost our home in the Clover Fire five years ago, oh. and then he lost almost everything in the August complex this year. But he lives um, in the Trinity Mountains on a large ranch out there and he, he helps caretake. And so he, he does not live where I grew up and my mom no longer lives there as well because they never rebuilt and mm-hmm. my parents are now divorced, but uh, yeah, you know, it's been, been devastating, but he lives, I think their ranch is maybe 35,000 acres. And, you know, it's, it's kind of the full circle of his American dream when he moved here is to have lots of freedom and to not be on grid and, you know, to, be able to tinker. My dad's a very creative, very intelligent, very talented person, and he creates some pretty amazing things. And he gets to fix equipment or work on the road, and you know, so it's kind of an ideal situation for him. You know, physically, my father's not in as good a shape as he used to be. Right. He was six foot six and four hundred pounds at one time, and he's wrecked Whoa. a couple cars and broke his back a few times, so he's <laughs> a little <laughs> stoved up. But uh, he still Whoa. moves around and yeah. enjoys his life. Wow, that is. I mean, that that's quite a. I just think about somebody like leaving Europe. Yes. Where it's so urbanized and everything's so civilized. And like you already kind of alluded to, there's just virtually no public land. There's no space there. Especially in Western Europe. Like Mm -hmm. all the hunting rights are owned by super wealthy aristocratic people. I was just reading. Have you ever read this book, H is for Hawk? Have you read that book? Not that. Nope, not yet. Oh my gosh, you would love it. It's about uh, it's about falconry. It's about a woman who trains okay. goshawk, and she lives in the UK. And um, but she talks in there about she comes to visit 
her friends in Maine because um, they get to hunt, you know, and she's like, she gets some permission to hunt her hawk, but in general, there's nowhere in the UK, like, you can't even fish. You have to, like, uh, you know, like, trespass to get onto a... Or you have to lease or own a certain size tract, and it's incredible. But that's a dramatic thing for your dad to go from... Europe. I mean, it'd be one thing to be like, I'm moving to the United States so I can like hunt some crap land and walk in access. But he's like, went, he went to the far other end of the spectrum on that. Yeah. And, you know, Northern California has changed a lot, even in my lifetime, but it really is an amazing place to live if you like to hunt. A lot mm-hmm. of opportunities. And much like a lot of Western states, there's a ton of federal land specifically uh, U.S. Forest Service land. So it's non-arable, mountainous land. It's typically Forest Service land. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a lot of opportunity there. And, you know, the hunting pressure when I was growing up wasn't nearly as intense as, say, here in Minnesota. So oftentimes you had large tracts of land to yourself. Yeah. It's changed a little bit now. But, um, you know, it was it was I can understand it was definitely a paradise compared to where he had come from. And, you know, the Dutch have a very high standard of living but yeah. like you get at, it's a very small country is very cramped. They're super industrious and every last inch of land that they farm just about has been recovered from below sea level and it's still kind of compressing. So it gets oh. farther below sea level, but the Dutch are uh, industrious people, but they live in very tight quarters and don't mm-hmm. have much for personal space. And that is a difficult thing for me to accept when I'm there, especially, you know, there's this place called Oostvoorde Plassen. And it's a wildlife refuge. One of my aunts, and subsequently I've been there a couple other times, took me there. And uh, it's supposed to be a wild place. You know, I went to go see the shorebirds there and a bunch of other um, bird species in the Netherlands. And it was just so incredibly overgrazed by, um, they had red stag, and then they had um, Przewalski's horses. And no population checks or anything along those lines. It was just, that was their idea of wild areas, you know, (laughs) and everything's touched there. You know, I I don't know how to describe it. I mean, obviously people have lived in North America for 10 to 20 plus thousand years um, by theory. And so, you know, humans have had a, a big influence in North America on the landscape, but in Europe, especially in the Netherlands, it's just very man dominated landscape there really is very little room for nature yeah um relative to what we have here it's it's mm-hmm. fascinating the dichotomy is, is very fascinating hmm. um i get pretty claustrophobic when i go there that right yeah <laughs> yeah i've i've the closest i've ever come to a panic attack is in the netherlands just because <laughs> i went from uh i was living in so i lived in new mexico in a fema trailer in a town with like 10 people i think there's 46 people in the county at the time working with desert bighorn sheep and then i lived in a tent in nevada working with desert sage or the uh, greater sage grouse and that with no water electricity you know and we're 100 miles from town either direction and then i was i went back home for a little while and then i went to visit family in the netherlands and i was just so stressed out by that difference because it was such a stark transition from all that time living in the middle of nowhere again and then high intensity human habitation. And after that, I moved to Minnesota, like directly after that trip. And so it was a Mm. funny transition, but yeah, I'm used to space. Mm. They don't have much of it there. Hey, before we get to your transition to Minnesota, this, this feral hog that's hanging behind you, I just read in the outdoor news this Uh week that I can't remember what state it was, but there were people, hunters 
who were hunting feral hogs and then like giving them to the state to give to underprivileged people for protein source. Hmm. But then the state decided that that the um, meat wasn't healthy enough or like wasn't safe enough. And so they stopped this entire program. And so I've never eaten feral hogs. And it's not like I've never hunted feral hog. I'd be interested in doing it. I know a lot of people who have in Texas and in um, California. What is the, what's your experience with the meat off of feral hog? Well, um, I think and I didn't read the article, but I think it probably has a lot to do with the tendency for them to have trichinosis or trichinella, okay. and that's a little worm that's kind of folded up and lives in a in the muscle, uh-huh. and that's basically sitting there dormant, waiting to be eaten by a carnivore. It's part of the life cycle, and humans can get it. And so sure. um, traditionally, we would have to cook pork very well, right? You've always, you're, you're of the right age class to know that we had to cook pork yeah, well. And right. that was one of the main reasons why is to kill those parasites. Uh-huh. And so feral hogs obviously are not heavily medicated or dewormed like our industrial pigs are. Um, and so they have other diseases as well as, you know, most likely that trichinella is one of the concerns. And the, I'd imagine the concern would be that if that parasite was present and if people aren't cooking the, the feral hog well enough because they've become accustomed to eating pork at a different temperature than it used to require. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's why, but, um, you know, that, you know, I, I always cringe when I see people making bear jerky or wild pig jerky. I'm like, Oh, you're going to get the Isn't that the same with, with bear? Like you have yes. got to cook it to 160 degrees. You can't yes. eat the it. Trichinella is, I think that has a lot to do with it. Most yeah. places. Yes. Okay. Okay. And, uh, you know, I mean, I know people that like a medium rare bear steak here in northern Minnesota, and I don't know if there's much of an issue here, okay. but where I come from, the bears are, you got to cook them. Yeah, and there are ways to prepare wild game that, you know, are where, where you cook the, the meat to that temp where it kills everything mm-hmm. in it. I mean, there's ways to do that. And I even know, that, like, I think there are some places where you can do that, uh, whatever that radioactive stuff, you know, how you can like treat your wild game at some point. No, this is like uh, ultraviolet stuff that supposedly kills that too. So some people are, that's obviously a little more high end type of deal. But I was about to say, I've never even heard of that. (laughs) Yeah. Like even when I, whenever I make jerky now, even if it's like pheasant jerky or wild turkey or whatever, I still, um, put in you know i still use pink curing salt to try to kill okay. all the bacteria and whatever which is probably not great for you but i just don't even feel great about eating jerky if it hasn't had you know been like in curing salt for three to five days that's that's yeah it would depend on the species for me and you know i i, I took wildlife diseases courses in college of course sure. and so i <laughs> You know, there's a lot of things that people let their dogs do to them that I would never. <laughs> do not let that tongue near your face. But, um, yeah, it's, oh, just some of the diseases. And But, yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, I, I, it depends on the species and the time of the year. And, you know, I, I certainly... Um, Honestly, I've had I've had intestinal parasites from uh, undercooked salmon that were poached in a river when I was a kid. Really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, I had a. It was terrible. Um, I wouldn't wish it on anyone. I do remember oh. it being quite terrible, but uh, it was. I think they called them pinworms. 
Oh. It's a pretty, pretty personal thing to share. But, uh, <laughs> you know, not too many people have intestinal parasites at some point in their life here in North America. No. But I can attest that, you know, fish and fresh water and salmon, when they make that transition from salt to fresh, they become... Uh, you know, loaded with parasites that we, you or I, as humans, can catch. Um, not right. so much in the ocean when they're ocean going, but when they enter the freshwater system, um, they end up pick, tend to pick up things that you and I can get. Okay, while we're on this topic, mm-hmm. I take great pride in the fact that when I go to the boundary waters, I do not filter my water. That I okay. I paddle out to the middle of the lake where you know it's twenty, thirty feet deep. I've okay. been told I'm not a biologist, so this is why I'm asking you. That giardia is heavier than water, so if you go into the deeper part of the lake, you're not going to get giardia. You can drink the water without it being filtered. I hate the taste of iodine. I think sharing filters. Anyways, I've never gotten sick. I know people who've been going to the boundary waters as long as I have their whole lives, never gotten Mm -hmm. sick. Would you filter? Do you filter your water in the boundary waters? Do you think it's silly that I don't? It depends on how thirsty I am. Ah. <laughs> you know, um, I in the early season, I like I, right after ice out, I'll drink it. Okay. Or if I can see it coming out of a spring, I'll drink it. But I've had giardia too, so I guess I've had at least two intestinal parasites. Oh, no but um, yeah, um, well, come from a small poor town, right? Our school actually had a giardia infestation because Uh-oh. they pulled their water source downstream from a stock tank. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, that would do it. yeah, and I and also the um there was another uh one of my mom's friends she had um a giardia infection in her water infestation and uh, I would drink from the hose and I wasn't supposed to I was told not to and I did anyways and I got Uh-oh. it again then too so Dang. but I've had it and um I've drank you know when it's early and the water's cold I'll drink it okay. um but I've never I'm sure there's got to be something to the fact that those parasites are in higher densities in warmer shallower water but don't quote me on it okay i wouldn't drink warm shallow water no unless you're dead no. yeah no yeah desperate and that's the thing is like sometimes i if i am run out of water or something silly you know and you're like ah, you know, i'm just gonna take a drink but uh yeah i've had some of those infestations or infections uh, and um not good like it's not, not pleasant yeah yeah so why uh why graduate why graduate degree in um studying grouse like what was your what was the allure to that well obviously they're a game species and i love to hunt but um they're chicken like birds and as i mentioned earlier we showed grew up showing chickens and i've always loved birds like i was just getting flogged by hens trying to steal their chicks when I was a little toddler and um, always loved birds, especially loved chickens when I was a kid. And so there's always been something that I find fascinating about them. And of course I was one of those dinosaur kids. I just love dinosaurs. And so, uh, you know, I, I just, I love birds. I absolutely have always been fascinated by them. I think they're much more interesting than mammals and then the chickens and the fact that they're a game species and, you know, it was an opportunity. I had the chance. I could choose between woodcock and rough grouse when I went to the University of Minnesota. And, you know, the rough grouse was my preference. Okay. Tell us about rough grouse. I mean, there's, I, I, I consider them the ghost of the woods because mm-hmm. uh, I hunt with a flushing dog because okay. my yeah. primary hunting is waterfowl and pheasant with the dog. 
So I love having a lab because he's very versatile and he loves retrieving ducks in the water and he's great in heavy cover in South Dakota in, in December and January for pheasants. It makes him not an ideal dog for grouse, rough grouse hunting. So we do have rough grouse on our property. You, you even saw one that one day. And, yep. but often because I'm hunting over a lab, you know, that grouse takes off before I can even see it. I just hear, and, off, yep. <laughs> and I see maybe some uh, aspen leaves falling from where the grouse yep. pour through the woods, you know. Um, I don't know. I shoot a grouse, I bet, once every five years on a property. <laughs> so it's, not, it's a very low. If I had to feed my family on rough grouse, we would starve to death, okay? I was about to say, good thing you got, good thing for the crappie on the lake, right? Yeah, we got crappies, <laughs> we got more whitetail, you know. Yes. On, on, on deer opener, we'll have three or four deer down on the ground in the first 30 minutes because you've seen Yeah, you guys have crappie. an awesome place. It's yeah, really it's cool. a great place for deer. And if I had a pointer, I'd probably shoot a few more grouse. But yep. all that to say, uh, tell us about grouse. Like, what's, what's your love affair with grouse? What's, what's that about? Well, um, you know, now that I live here long term, I've got at least another 11 years in Minnesota here. You know, it's what we have that's the best here. I used to archery hunt, and I was really big into waterfowl at one time. But, um, you know, I, the archery hunting up here is a real long waiting game. You don't typically see deer sometimes you'll sit a whole season and not see a single one uh where i used to hunt a lot and then you know we just i'd be sitting in the deer stand and there'd be grouse walking around or buzzing by and woodcock buzzing by and it just was one of those things where i kind of thought what am i doing up here and then i ended up with a in graduate school i got a drothar my first one and um she you know she's still alive she's a pain in the butt but uh just a really kind of was one of those things where you dedicate a lot of time to getting a dog like that through the German system. You know, I, she ended up being breed certified and um, I, I went through that process with all three of them. And <clears throat> so, yeah, I just got to the point where, uh, you know, that didn't make any sense to do any of those other things. And I remember vividly the first time I shot a bird on the wing over um, my ex-husband's young lab. It was like the year I moved here and I just couldn't it was so exciting and you know, that's just kind of addicting. And, and like I said, I tell people I used to do all these other things, but why would you do those things when you live in like the best grouse and woodcock country in North mm -hmm. America right now, mm -hmm. you know, and, mm -hmm. and now I've really transitioned into pointing breeds. And like I mentioned earlier, I, I've been training other folks, dogs or gun dogs. And I am um, getting a setter from a litter that I'm producing, I'm keeping uh, probably two pups from the litter I'm producing this spring. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's just kind of been a, become a bigger part of my life. And, you know, we've talked, you mentioned a little bit of, uh, before when we were having this conversation about the spirituality of hunting and, and uh, the connection into the woods. And you add a dog to that scenario, especially for me, a pointing dog. There's something so mythical and magical still about a dog pointing. Um, because I grew up with hounds and stock dogs, very active moving dogs, complete opposite response than uh, what those dogs would have in the face of game. And for me, it's just, I don't know, you know, rough grouse are, are beautiful. They're fun. They're extremely challenging depending on population densities. And um, it's just, it's a, a bird here in Minnesota that kind of typifies the Northwoods for me. You know, mm -hmm. and, 
I know everyone waxes and wanes poetically about them, but, uh, you know, they're just, there's something to be respected and, and they're a great opportunity up here. Yeah. How much does a rough grouse weigh usually? You know, I can't give you a solid number right now, but, um, less than, a, I mean, it's, it's, uh, yeah, less than a pound to a pound and a half, maybe. It's the, third and, the size of a pheasant or half the size of a pheasant. Yes, and a big male that's in good flesh is a hefty bird. It's okay. not like a pheasant, but, uh, you know, it's about the size of a hen pheasant, a good-sized yeah. male, like a big mature male that's in very good flesh. So if you're if you're um, preparing one to eat, it's about, mm-hmm. I mean, for people who don't know what, people who are listening who don't know what a rough grouse is, it's, it's like a one bird is enough to feed one adult kind of right yeah an adult yeah and i i would um unless it's a very large male then i would share it with my seven-year-old child Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but you know it's it's definitely something you would roast more than one if you had two people there one of the things that makes grouse i mean you talk about dogs being mythical and magical which i 100 percent agree with although i i would say the same thing about how it is hunting over a flusher as Mm -hmm. uh uh, really <laughs> magical, but I go round and round with. I mean, mm-hmm. I hunt. Most of the guys I hunt with hunt with pointers, and uh, I'll tell you, it's always great having a flusher. It's always great having a retriever, because a lot of the guys I hunt with, their pointers aren't super interested in finding a dead bird. They're off to uh. they're off for the next point. And labs, you know, if, if you tell a lab there's a dead bird in those cattails, <laughs> they'll go in there and they won't come out till they have got the bird in their mouth, which is one of the things I love about labs. They're, they're not as, um, oh, I don't know, special as, as, uh, you know, a fancy German dog like you guys. Well, they are, the thing is, is that those fancy German dogs are super tenacious, uh, yes. retrievers yeah. and, oh, okay. you know, and I've seen some incredible retrieves with, with my dogs and, you know, that's what the thing is that they'll do everything a lab will, but they'll point. And wow. I know that they've got these pointing labs now, but I, I think it'll be another 40 or 50 years before they even come close to a, a specialized pointing breed. Yeah. And so, yeah. And I, you know, I, I, the only reason I don't like flushers is I am a more of a relaxed hunter and mm-hmm. uh, hunting behind a flusher gets my heart rate up too much and it's too stressful, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like there's a time and a place to chase a dog, but I kind of like to, to sit and let a dog work within 80 to 90 yards of me and um, within that range. And, and when they, they, you know, to watch them change their behavior, yeah. or listen to them change their behavior, and then to be able to walk in on a bird uh, to me is, that's the way I like to hunt. Yeah. And that's, you know, and it, there are times when I wish I had a flusher, uh, you know, once or twice a year when I go into cattails <laughs> down south in late season pheasant. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah. I, watched, I was watching with my son, uh, my youngest kid is the one who hunts with me a lot and we were watching an episode of the flush uh okay show, and they were you know in canada like just over the border in canada grouse hunting mm-hmm. and they're all walking around with their um with their over-unders broken open mm-hmm. like hanging on yep. their shoulder and you know my son's he what he's used to is pheasant hunting in south dakota right and and he's like why these guys aren't even ready to shoot and i'm like that's <laughs> It's much more of a, uh, yes, like you say, it's a more relaxed, like, then, then it, the dogs went on point, and these guys, like, got in a circle, which you would, of course, never do when you were pheasant hunting and things like that. And, like, see, it's just a different, it's a different way of doing it. Um, 
Yeah, and I, I usually have my gun broke too, so you can give them a hard time for That's that. Funny. But I, you know, it's, it's, you know, I like the way they carry like that, and and I don't have to be at the ready. And depending on which dog I'm running, um, you know, some dogs I'll, it doesn't matter. But you know, a lot of times you don't point a, a shoot at a bird, especially with a young dog that hasn't been handled properly. Hmm. And so it's just a different game, you know. Yeah, totally. It's, one of the things about grouse that's so uh, amazing, I think, is that the drumming sound they make mm-hmm. in the woods. I mean, that talk about something that seems like, I don't know, you don't know if you're listening to something like out of the dinosaur age or you're listening to like a, a small engine startup. Yeah, what, that's really cool. Yeah, what, Go ahead. tell us what's happening, what, what's happening when they make that drumming sound. Well, you know, it's a, obviously it's a physical movement that they're making. It's not a vocalization or anything along those lines. And these birds are beating their wings with enough force and speed to create a vacuum mm-hmm. between their wings. And so it's actually a sonic boom as a result of the formation of a vacuum. And so that's what it is. It, that's why a lot of people that have a hard time hearing, they can't hear low frequencies but they may be able to feel that drumming in their chest. Mm. And a lot of times I feel like when I listen for those birds, it's a combination between the feel in my chest and actually hearing those birds. Wow. And so what's interesting is that, like I said, those lower frequencies, as people age, they get less able to detect those birds. And so we do see some variation in drumming surveys when it comes to biologists as they age out and then being replaced by a young person. No kidding. Um, <laughs> yeah, that actually happened a couple of years ago that potentially, you know, there's occasionally you'll get an outlier where you'll have a, someone retire and then someone else com- completes their drumming survey and they'll have a much higher count than they did before. And that actually is uh, something that was theorized to have influenced our estimates <laughs> a couple of years ago. But yeah, it's really a fascinating uh, thing. And, and you know, they're honestly, they're not that hard to sneak up on and watch. And that's really a treat, especially if a pair of binoculars and you kind of locate a bird. And when I listen to a bird, it's funny, I rotate my head to kind of get a, an idea on the direction because, as mm-hmm. you know, a lot of low frequency sounds are hard to get a direction on, especially like blue grouse when they're hooting in trees are very difficult to locate. So rough grouse, again, another low frequency thing. And you can time them, especially this time of year when they start to drum. A male that's consistently drumming will drum at a set amount of time every time, just about. And so you can. So you could listen hear, and walk yep. toward it, stop and stop again. Yep. Okay. Yep. And then when you, because um, if you're moving too much and you're close to them, they may not drum. But so it's right, usually, I think, an average is two minutes or so between drums. And you can time them and then you can sneak in on, on them that way if you're patient enough. And just start scanning the logs um, for uh, birds. Usually they're standing on them, looking alert when there's movement in the woods. And then if you stand there quietly long enough, they'll start to drum. Even if you bump them off the log, a lot of times they'll come back and jump up on that drumming stage and, and, and go again. And it's neat to watch. And, yeah. and when you get closer, that, that sound changes a little bit. I've only seen video of it. I've never seen it live. I've heard it many times. Mm-hmm. I'd always thought it was a mating thing, but I've heard them do it in you know spring winter spring summer and fall it can serve both purposes okay. it's you know it's it's an audio signal to other birds of presence of a male and so in the in the fall what's happening is uh, established males are advertising their location to young dispersing males mm-hmm. And so this kind of the first stage to avoid any sort of conflict because male grouse are somewhat territorial, especially towards their core, the core of their territory. And so they're, uh, 
you know, they're basically establishing that someone's here, don't come near, you're going to get, we're going to get in a fight. Uh, and then in the, in the spring, it's also, you know, establishing that this is my location. I'm a big, sexy male. I'm able to make this sound. Come check me out. <laughs> and so in the spring, it's more of a breeding breeding thing, but there's still some territoriality there. How far grouse well, stay within a pretty circumscribed area for their whole life, right? They don't, they don't migrate. It depends. Y- yes, they don't migrate. Go ahead. Well, and just so how far you said it depends. Like I've I've heard, oh, they never they're within a two mile, two square mile area their entire lives or some like so basically yep. if you've got grouse on your property, those grouse are gonna stay on your you know, generally in, in that same area. Yes. Some will well obviously there's just a dispersal period and dispersal is a one way movement, right? From typically from point of origin, so where they hatched. And so after the broods break up, the birds are large enough, they disperse and look for their own territory. And some stay in the same area and others move greater distances. Mm-hmm. And, um, but yeah, once they're established and they have a good area, they have good habitat, they tend to stay there. Part of predator avoidance is familiarity with your home, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if, if uh, there's a person dressed in black standing in the corner i'm gonna notice it right mm-hmm. you know and and so we're familiar with our home so are they um but the the size of the area that a bird occupies a home range depends on the quality of the habitat so the better the habitat the smaller the home ranges are for these birds and the smaller the territories and so you think about it a rough grouse like you said is non-migratory so they have to live in an area that provides everything they need at every life stage throughout the year and so, um, you know, I was visiting with a fellow yesterday on his property and, you know, thermal cover in winter and within a short distance, there are mature male aspens that are starting to break bud. Prime example, the birds have in the wintertime, what's the limitation is food and cover. Mm-hmm. And they have both things within a short distance of each other. And so those birds are occupying probably a smaller area than, say, birds that have to travel greater distances to meet both needs. Okay. Yeah, we just, well, you've been on our land uh, last mm-hmm. spring we planted 400 balsam trees oh, okay. for that thermal cover, which, I mean, yep. you know, they were an inch tall, so it's going to be many years. Mm-hmm. But down the road, you know, we hope there'll be a really nice balsam grove that will abut right next to the young aspen that we, you know, we've logged once and will continue to log that, that aspen stand over and over. So um, let me ask you a couple other quick uh, biologist questions because it's rare to have a you know certified biologist wildlife just <laughs> Tur- do turkeys eat grouse eggs uh i would say they probably would if they encounter them but uh the, the bigger question is whether or not there's a population level impact and we don't have any evidence uh, okay. to that effect but if you've ever raised turkeys and i've raised a lot because they're fun to raise and i used to show them um, they'll eat anything that can fit down their throat <laughs> and is of caloric value. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure that they eat them, but again, it's, you know, maybe an, at the a lower level in the population as far as impact to the individual. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I wouldn't doubt it. Yeah. I would not I mean, doubt it. I, I, growing up in Minnesota, there were no turkeys, you know, yes. now yeah. we, now I'll, I'll, a month from now I'll be, you know, up at our place, turkey hunting. <laughs> I, uh, you turkey hunt as well. I think you a turkey hunt around Grand Rapids. I actually was mushroom hunting down by Hill City last year. Okay. And just looking for, I had a good patch of elms picked out, and I thought I'm going to try and find these yellow morels because I hunt black morels. And I I saw a hen turkey 
And then I drove down the road a little farther and I was a hand and a Tom and I thought, well, shoot. And I went and bought a tag and came back the next morning at three in the morning and shot gobbled the mail off the roost and shot one. So yeah, they're here. And uh, I grew up hunting them in California where you can, we can kill, I think five of them a year and you only one a day. And it's a $9 stamp for uh, their upland, considered an upland species. So, you know, that was uh, one of the, the birds that I cut my teeth on with my dad. I learned a lot uh, turkey cool. hunting as a little kid with him. But yeah, that's they're here and they're all the way up into Deer River and north of, uh, north of Deer River now, and that's in a fair bit north of Grand Rapids. And like you said, they they weren't here before. They don't necessarily belong here. Whether or not they're moving as a result of climate change, or most likely it's human impacts on the landscape. Um, but they they definitely are are not not necessarily native this far north. Yeah. Now, uh, on a similar note, I, I remember having a conversation with you uh, in the past about wolves and about deer. And I remember you saying to me something along the lines of, I won't quote you directly, but basically like Grand Rapids and North, it, it's not whitetail country, it's moose country. And so the people who want to extirpate the wolves so they can have better deer hunting, maybe they've had great deer hunting in the last 20 years, but in general, that's not really deer territory. Like where our place is, is more deer territory up by where you are and further north. It's not supernatural for there to be whitetails. And now, you know, you do hear a lot of complaints from northern Minnesota deer hunters. Oh, we don't have the deer we used to have. But I don't know what time frame they're thinking of on that. Well, humans have a very short memory. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, and uh, so it's people tend to forget things fairly quickly. And we did, you know, when I first moved to Minnesota 13 years ago, almost now, um, there were a lot more deer up north, but they changed their population goal setting process, which we're just in that process now, public input period closed the 20th of February, um, where they wanted a reduction in the, the deer herd up there. And so they did, they greatly reduced the population so much so that there was, uh, I was told not enough hardly to support the meso carnivore population in some areas, hmm. but that was a result of the public input, um, period and the decisions that were made uh as a result so yeah you know we, we have low deer densities up there and that's the way it probably should be and like you said that there used to be mostly moose and caribou up here and uh white-tailed deer were theorized to be farther south and when we slick the forest saying we as in european settlers mm-hmm. i'm actually a tribally enrolled potawatomi uh, citizen band, my, tribal member. So it's always a con- contention. Like yeah. we, I say we, but it's like I'm, I'm a you're, product yeah. of an immigrant and, and yeah. yeah, also tied to North America. Right. But um, post-European settlement here in Minnesota, when they logged off our white pine and our, our red pine forests here in northern Minnesota, it changed the forest composition. It opened it up a lot more. And wildlife are, are whitetail are, are habitat generalists. And so they were theorized that they moved farther north. That in addition to the fact that people were trying to farm up here. And so there was a lot more farmland and open land up here than there was prior to European settlement. And so it's really the, the habitat really changed quite a bit and, and they were able to move farther north. Uh, and I've heard similar things about coyotes uh, in, re- in relation to them being farther north than they used to be. This used to be wolf country. Um, but it's hard to say without having, you know, a time machine. But Well, okay, last, bi- last biology question. What do you think okay. about the reintroduction of woodland caribou into northern Minnesota? Pro, pro or con? Well, I don't know how successful it will be unless you eliminate deer. 
Oh, really? So that's the problem. Yeah. Because the deer would... Liver flukes and brainworm and all of the things so that deer carry. Not, not food. Not It's not like... Yeah, it's not a direct competition. It's the... It's the one of the things that moose are suffering from is this maintained parasite load in the environment. Right. And so parasites, kind of like predators, should respond to population changes and fluctuations. Uh-huh. But if you have moose declining and the deer populations remaining stable, if not increasing, you know, they continue to maintain those parasites. And brainworm is not something that moose do well with, right? It's typically right. fatal just about. And um, same thing, I believe caribou are impacted by it as well. And then liver flukes is another thing that... Um, deer kind of maintain a higher parasite load in the environment than would be if say moose declined those parasites would decline give moose a chance to increase that's that's a whole nother conversation but um i think that it would probably would not be successful unless they um eliminate a deer in that area Hmm. and long enough to to reduce the parasite load in the environment but i'm not an ungulate biologist or ecologist so it's hard to say 100 i might be blowing steam but i would think it would be very difficult with our deer population densities okay let's switch from talking about live animals to talking about dead animals uh taxidermy yeah everybody who's followed your uh social media account have have noticed an uptick in you know taxidermy lately so it's become a passion of yours and i wonder if we can't i also maybe we can dovetail two conversations together because i know from what you've told me that you consider yourself spiritual but not religious and that hunting is a sacred act for you which makes it sometimes even hard to talk about the deeper meaning of that um is there something about doing taxidermy handling these dead animals that is that is that some kind of a spiritual practice for you or like how what's that even like i've never done anything like that before so i'm super interested in 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 how that is for you so i'm a visual artist i'm lucky that i'm i'm i have an artistic ability and I consider myself fairly artistic in general. And, and it, when I was a kid, one of the ways I managed stress was with art. Okay. So I'd paint and draw. And that followed me all the way into college. Um, so when I was at Humboldt State my first semester, you know, I'd always been interested in taxidermy. My dad used to do taxidermy in the Netherlands as part of how he put himself through trade school. Hmm. And um, so... I was always interested in it and we, you know, it's always something that I, I was fascinated by. And so I, I literally went into this, this Humboldt state has a pretty awesome library. It's like three stories tall. I got all the old taxidermy books one weekend and I read them all. And I had shot a surf scoter, a, a bunch of surf scoters um, with some of my classmates and I had saved one to mount. And I just this like sat duck. down and I, that's an uh, ocean going duck. Ocean duck. Yeah, predominantly black, has a white patch in the back of their head, a white patch in their forehead, and then their bill is just out of this world, colorful, looks like a clown made it, you know. Um, They're, yeah, they're um, oceanic birds, typically, uh, coastal, and we get them sometimes on on Superior and things along those lines, but big, stinky sea duck, right? (laughs) They have, like, blaze orange fat, and they have salt glands over their eyes, and um, really cool birds, very... um, they were very willing decoying birds, but, uh, I, I just sat down and I bought the base materials. I used to tie flies quite a bit. So I had all of my fly tying equipment in my, my apartment and all I really needed 
uh, beyond some of my shears and stuff that I had was wire and um, I ordered a body and borax and some eyes. And so I, I just kind of sat down one weekend after reading that and I put a bird together and then I did another and I did another and that was like 17 years ago. Mm. And I kind of dropped it for a while and picked it up a little bit in grad school here and there when I, someone, you know, I have a spruce grouse from Canada that was part of a phylogenetic study. And uh, yeah, you know, I, 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 then I went, I started teaching at the college, started picking up again. Um, we've been developing the college's vertebrate uh, teaching collection, but I guess to get at the root of the question is, you know, it is for me an act of art. Um, and I get, most of it I don't like, you know, um, skinning the bird. I don't like fleshing the bird. I don't like washing the bird. I don't like drying the bird. I don't like, I don't even like putting the bird in the form, but I like the last couple of hours where the bird comes together and it looks terrible. And then at some moments you step back and you're like, Oh, it, it's looking like a bird, you know, and it, it's a process that results in something very gratifying. Hmm. And so I've got, usually around eight hours or more in a bird. And that's from, you know, because you skin them and I'm like injecting feet and artificial heads and painting. And sure. it's quite a process. And, uh, you know, I, for me, it's not so much spiritual. It's that it, it feeds that artistic side of me mm-hmm. and it's um, a stress reliever. And to be honest, it pumps me up to the point that I can't sleep after right. I do one. <laughs> yeah. And so I'll start a bird it'll take me a couple days to go through the process if I do a little bit of time, but I can start a bird around noon and then, um, you know, leave it for a while to make dinner or whatever. And I may not get done with that bird till like 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night. And it's bedtime by then. Then I go to bed and I'm just like, wow, I was like amped up thinking about the process and what it looks like and what did I do here? And what did this look like? And what is it going to dry like? And, you know, and it's just like this, um, when you get involved in a painting or a drawing, you know, it's just, it's hard to stop. I don't, I have a hard time stopping and then re-engaging with the same energy. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's, um, it's a similar thing. So for me, it's, it's a artistic outlet. And for, when it comes to the spiritual side, you know, trophies and the retention of trophies is as old as human wildlife interactions. You know, mm-hmm. people have saved pieces of animals uh, for a very long time for various reasons. And a lot, in some cases it's mementos, even cave paintings are a type of trophy. Mm-hmm. And um, so it, the spiritual side is for my personal taxidermy collection, you know, I've got some stuff from Africa. I've got some black tails and things like that and um, skulls from different trips and, there is a very strong memory and emotion tied to them. Mm. And so um, I can look at an animal that I harvested and it's like instant story time in my head. Mm. And I can stand there and share the story very vividly in front of that animal or even with a picture of it. Um, and that's a difficult thing to understand. So I know, never understand people wanting to buy taxidermy uh, other than just for the beauty of it. Yeah. But for me, it's... Um, I even look at my dad. He's got probably 20 deer mounts and they're all lined up and there. Some of them are some pretty amazing black tails. And I just, I look at him like, man, I, I don't, it's not, it's kind of a morbid thought. It's like, what do you do when someone passes in their right. taxidermy is here? You know, it's like that value, the weight, the story, the meaning mm-hmm. that's tied to those animals, unless you were part of that hunt or part of that experience is lost with mm-hmm. that person. Mm-hmm. So for me, the spiritual side is that, that quick, that tied deep connection, the story, the memory. And um, sometimes people 
bring me birds because it's just a nice bird and doesn't necessarily have a story. And um, that's that's common, but people like the beauty of the animals and they have different motivations for taxidermy. But for me, taxidermy and having it in my house is, is memory-based. Hmm. That's very cool. Plus, I like looking at animals, but primarily, it's they're very. There's a lot of emotional ties to them. Yeah, so you're going to be leaving all these to your daughter then. Plus, all your <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, and so between my sister uh-huh. and I and my dad, and there's only one child to inherit all of those things. You know, you start to think of like, where do these things go? <laughs> and um, you know. I was thinking about that today. Uh, I was ordering taxidermy supplies from a catalog, and I'm like, how many of these get thrown away every year because family members don't remember the story or don't care or find it distasteful? Um, And it's just kind of one of those organic things that just kind of disappears. It's like a tombstone. You know, after a few generations, nobody looks at it anymore. Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's kind of a bad way to put it, but no, I think that's no, what it is. You know what that is? That's an honest way to put it. Yeah. I think is, is good and valuable. And uh, I mean, I've, yeah, I've been thinking about that. I think about that a lot. And we, we actually buried my dad's ashes at our cabin and Mm -hmm. have a little headstone there, which is probably not even legal to do. I mean, it it was his urn where it wasn't like his whole corpse, but, we go and visit him so much more now than we ever would if he were in like a traditional cemetery, you know, like yes. tied to our land. And that's like super important, valuable part of his memory for us is, is he loved it up there. You met him, you know, I, I'll, I remember you having a beer out on the deck with us when you were off yeah. the clock, when you were off the clock. For- <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, and uh, pheasant sausages, as I recall, I think we ate that day. Um, yeah, I've I th- I've had two meals there, and I, oh. I don't remember which one it was, but I do remember yeah. your father's company and how inquisitive he was. Yeah, he really was, and he loved the land, and now he's there forever, you know. But um, I I no, I think that's honest to think about that, and I've I don't have any taxidermized animals, but I really would like to do that. I mean, one of the tricky things for us is we have a communally owned cabin with multiple families and so you can't just be like hey here's my turkey that's gonna be like take up this entire shelf you know this turkey yeah um but uh well one last thing i'd love to ask you about and it might also be related to that spirituality question is um you know, in general, our culture is getting less religious. It's just like religion yep. is basically dying before our eyes, organized religion. Um, and you and I are both committed to, in, diff- in our own different ways, getting more people out hunting. And you particularly do it with like these Gen Z kids who are currently in college or the, mm-hmm. the age of my kids. My kids are in college now. And um, do you, what, what, I guess, when you when you introduce a twenty year old to hunting, where, what tie do you do you try to mentor them in into the land, into the animals, into our our place in creation and stuff like that? Because I I'm guessing that for you it's not just like, hey, I'm gonna take you out here and show you how to hunt. It's it's deeper than that. There's deeper meaning to that. Yeah, and you know. I do take people hunting every year 
um, new people that are new to it or that are new to grouse and woodcock hunting. And like I kind of alluded to earlier, it's very personal for me. And so it's almost like an invasion of my soul to take somebody. <laughs> and that's why guiding is not something I necessarily enjoy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've guided at the national hunt and I've never taken money otherwise. And I, not that we got paid to do that either. Um, a lot of the people that guided those things are volunteers, but uh, you know, it's really strange because it's a very personal thing and it's, then it becomes something very different because it's about that person that you're taking mm-hmm. and it's not about you and you're focused on making sure that they're safe and the dog's safe. And um, it's kind of a clash of two worlds. It's, it's, you want to be in that zone. You want to enjoy yourself, but then there's that certain level of responsibility that you have to maintain for the other person, their safety and their experience. And um, so it's a sacrifice uh, for me to take somebody because it, it is a, a, like almost an invasion of my personal space. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but you know, most people that are interested in hunting that have never hunted before are already fascinated by the concept and the animals and the environment that they're in. And um, I find it very easy to engage them uh, and their appreciation by just sharing things. And apparently I'm knowledgeable um, because everyone seems to be blown away uh, by a walk through the woods with me. And it's just stuff I see. Uh, not to brag, but it's just for me. It's oh, like I, that's I me living and breathing, walking through the woods with you. So yes, it's true. Yeah, yeah. It's I think I guess well, like I yes, yesterday I was out with a, a fellow that I um, I'm going to use his fields for dog training and walking their property. And he's like, my head hurts. I'm learning too much. Here. <laughs> no, this is ridiculous. And so, but it's just one of those things where if you were into it, um, and they they usually they obviously have to have interest if you're going to approach somebody to take you out um it, it i think it's really easy to engage them and be an educator at that time it's just a different role when i take somebody hunting and you know again a lot of the students that i do take that are new to it you know they're they're in natural resources there was one student in in particular he was from texas and um he didn't own a gun he'd never i don't even think he'd ever shot a shotgun mm. and he was really interested he wanted to learn and uh, I told him, well, you know, you need to get your hunter safety and this and that. And you know, I'm a firearm safety instructor, mm-hmm. but I didn't teach that, of course, that year. And uh, he's, okay, okay, okay. And I said, um, and I, I think I can probably um, get a shotgun for you to use. And I've got a bunch of them, you know, all of us, we accumulate shotguns at some point. And mm-hmm. so the next week I said, hey, uh, I think his name was Chris or something. I'm like, do you, do you get your license? He's like, yeah, I, I got it on Friday. And then um, he said, I, and then I took my Xbox and I sold it and I bought a shotgun. <laughs> and I was like, what you get? And, you know, I think he got a, it was either a Remington or a Benelli, you know, Nova or something, yeah. something introductory. Yeah. But I was super proud of him. And I took him out and I uh, took him with another student and they tag teamed a woodcock and they both took a picture with the woodcock. But then that student went out and uh, he was motivated enough personally to go and walk. And I showed him a couple places to go and walk. And he ended up harvesting a few grouse um, just wow. by walking trails by himself. And so that was an example of a student where you just, you know, one of those young people that didn't have the opportunity. You gave him a chance. You gave him the basics and they took it and ran with it. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, some sometimes though um, students pick up on it that are they like shooting sports but they've never hunted and you give them a good opportunity, a positive experience, no pressure. And sometimes it, it lights a fire and, and they run with it. And, you know, we've, we talked a little bit ago about 
and this was prior to a recording, but that I used to be much more involved in social media mm-hmm. and media in general. And uh, I was very involved to the point where I was burning myself out um, mm-hmm. with things like councils and things along those lines. And, uh, you know, I'm a single mom. Um, I'm, I'm a t- I got a pretty tight energy budget mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I've got myself, you know, I'm 2,000, 2,500 miles away from my family and I don't have a huge support system here. And so um, it's, it's a, uh, there's not much time for spare time. And so I've really pulled back from state level and national level efforts and focus more on my community here because I feel like that's where I can make the biggest impact. Hmm. And there are limiting factors for Gen Zers or kids, you know, some of them never have a chance now, whether it's a girl or a boy um, or anyone of, you know, I don't even know, I'm not versed enough in being political correct to this, you know, anybody of any orientation may or may not have an opportunity and um, they need an opportunity and they may have interest, but they may have been overlooked for one reason or another, or life circumstances have overlooked them. And um, so I, I um, think of it as an inheritance. It's something that I inherited from my father and to some extent my mother. And I may not be wealthy um, and I may struggle sometimes um, because I'm kind of on my own here in this world. But uh, I have an inheritance to pass on to my daughter, and that's my experiences and my skills. And that's also something I can pass down to community members and people that cross my path in my classroom, is this inheritance of ability and knowledge and skills and experiences that can't be bought, um, but are invaluable. And so I guess that uh, when you do find a willing student or somebody who's interested enough, you know, they are grateful for that inheritance Mm -hmm. and, you know, it's giving them that opportunity. And I think that a lot of people are focused at that are passionate about sharing, hunting and fishing. They're so focused um, off target when it comes to, you know, the audience, you know, maybe they're getting a lot of social media likes, but really are they moving the needle? Uh, when it comes to any sort of numbers or inspiring people, and you can you can put all the selfies you want and all the, these awesome stories about how you did this or that on social media. But if you aren't actually recruiting new hunters or supporting hunters that are developing, um, I think that it, it's not as helpful as, say, bringing f- four or five students every year through this process and, and, and giving them the tools to become hunters and hopefully sparking that desire and that love uh, inside of them for, for the sport. Mm. And so that's why I went small. You know, wow. I know that I can make that, that to change small and that's the energy budget I have and, you know, and my, and my current situation. And so that's where I'm working now is at a smaller level. And like uh, last fall, I offered an adult um, only uh, firearm safety course. And I think we put eight people through with COVID restrictions mm-hmm. And that was really a cool experience, and I, I plan on doing that again every fall. So, well, that's beautiful, and <laughs> no, and your students. I, I mean, your college students are very fortunate, and your daughter is very fortunate to have you as a a committed mom. And uh, I just, I think it's fantastic what you're doing, and I'm glad we've been able to stay connected, even though you're less on social media. I still, you know, when you post a a skinned uh, goose head or something. I, <laughs> I'm happy to see it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad I, you know, I, I have grandiose ideas deep down inside sometimes to, to do more, but 
Like I said, it's no, I, if, if you enjoy the skinned pheasant head or the, the, the goose head, <laughs> so be it. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love it. Going small. It's it's probably what we all need to be doing. So thank yeah. you. Thanks a million for coming on the podcast and, you know, best wishes and, you know, come back. Come on over this summer with your dogs for a, a beer and a pheasant broth. That sounds awesome. I, I plan on it. I know that our paths will cross and I always appreciate a conversation with you, Tony. Yeah, thanks.